0: We're there. We're at the final Sunday service of 2015. Uh, Regardless of your general experience in the last 12 months, uh, good or bad, I I think we can all agree it has been an amazing year. Um, You know, at the end of a calendar year, it becomes natural to us to, to come together, to review where we've been personally, ourselves in our lives... Professionally, how how careers have gone, jobs have gone gone, how family has gone, especially as a church, we look back. We ask ourselves: Did we succeed? Did we succeed? Did we fail? Did we even tread water? Was our time invested wisely? And since society advances on a 365-day Gregorian calendar, that is that is the Western calendar, uh, we have automatically come to recognize that that at midnight of every December 31st another year of our lives has gone every single one of us our time is running out so confronted with this reality uh, we come to take a moment look back and say quite literally where did the time go and and to do that, to look back, that's that's a healthy thing to do. Uh, if you do it appropriately and keep the past in its proper place. Most of us struggle with that. Uh, I know at many, uh, when we look through the rear view mirror, we, we sometimes tend to over-inflate accomplishments personally, achievements. And like that farmer in Luke, you know, who who had had a great year and, and, and he filled his barns, actually tore down barns and, and, and filled new, bigger barns. His accomplishments he saw as a benefit to himself going forward. That was a wrong way to assess the past. Then there are those who, uh, in the present state, it, it's such a disappointment to them, either physically or financially or, or emotionally, emotionally that people mentally want to dwell on the distant past, a a time that was better. They might even have the same hairstyles they did back in the 80s and wear those cotton leisure suits like we saw on TV. they They just never want to come out of the past. They live in the past. Or you might be the type... who who looks back and and you just dwell on missed opportunities and and then just minimize any uh, achievements or accomplishments or what the Lord has done, failing to acknowledge uh, the very positive things, the very positive ways that God has blessed you. All these attitudes can be uncomfortable. They can be unhealthy. They can be unprofitable to us as Christians. So we have to ask, how should the past be viewed? How can looking at the past benefit us? And today we'll be reminded to keep our past in its proper place. I invite you to turn first to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's going to be a topical message, but we'll be at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and then we'll go back to Joshua chapter 24. And today we'll listen to two great leaders of Israel. Two exceptionally great leaders of Israel. King Solomon first in Ecclesiastes, and then Joshua as he neared the end of his life. Both these great men looked back, they they assessed their lives, years past, and although their histories are quite different, very different from one another, uh, the lesson that they learned, the lessons that they learned are very similar. First, with King Solomon. Likely, you well know of his life, it started off very, very well. Uh, he first request, his first request in becoming king was just, just to ask God for wisdom to govern his people. Govern the, the nation of Israel. And God granted Solomon that request. He became the wisest king ever. Ever to reign over Israel. He wrote a large portion of the wisdom literature contained in the Bible. Large percentage of the Proverbs. Most of the Proverbs. He, he built the temple in Jerusalem. The first temple. Nonetheless, the end of his life ended up not so spectacular, did it? In fact, he himself, looking back over his life, at his pursuits, where he invested himself, uh, and, and writing really an autobiography of sorts in Ecclesiastes, he admits great portions of his life were a tragic failure. King Solomon's achievements were enormous. They were. He built the original temple... Over a 13-year period, he, he constructed the royal palace. He rebuilt and reforti- fortified numerous cities across the Promised Land. He built a, a major port on Ezion Gever. That was, that was a port which bordered the Red and Indian Seas, where, where Solomon's massive fleet of ships would bring goods into the Promised Land. Huge achievement at that time. It, his reputation for excellence was unparalleled. His financial accomplishments unequaled. Most astounding was that he he accomplished all of this in only 40 years. Just 40 years. No excavators, no bulldozers, no cranes. Amazing what he had accomplished. Yet, in the latter part of his, part of his life, he viewed most of these material accomplishments as insignificant. He had tried everything there was to try. He bought and owned every toy there was to own. Apparently married every beautiful woman that came his way. He concluded it was all vanity. That means they they were meaningless. His pursuits, his accomplishments, looking back, they brought no personal satisfaction to his heart at all. They were meaningless. It was vanity. And re- recounting his, his past, Solomon said he enjoyed every type of pleasure, satisfied every lust, built vacation homes, planted vineyards, built gardens and parks, owned flocks and herds larger than any one previous to him. He collected gold and silver. But most of us collect stamps. He collected gold. He had a 4,000 stall garage. 4,000 stallions for his chariots. He acquired 1,000 wives. Even though the law of God, God's word clearly said that a king shall not multiply wives or horses. He disobeyed. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you ever want to look at that. Yet he writes the wisdom of God. Scripture says the wisdom of God stood by him. He didn't always obey. And and assessing himself in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 9, Solomon says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Then he came to a conclusion in verse 10. Thus I considered all of my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. No profit to it. No profit to it. Does that sound like a man who was real satisfied with all of his hard work and effort that he had put forth over 40 years? No. Why? Why? It's because what he had done with his money, a lot of what he had done, he used it for sin. He used it for sin. There was was no profit in it. There was no uh, satisfaction in it. He calls it vanity. Many of his activities, his behavior was was directly contrary to what God's Word said, What, what what a believer should pursue, what a believer should earn. So so they're just empty. Those those pursuits are empty. And and Solomon considered all of his labor futile because he spent it on his pleasures and he he experienced no joy. Experienced no joy in the end. But what about a man who who does serve God with, with that same labor, that same intensity, that same effort, regardless how much he earns? Doesn't matter if he's making minimum wage or whether he's top paid in the NFL. What does a man, if he's going to serve God with his labor, uh, will that bring him satisfaction? Can that provide satisfaction? Well, according to the wisest philosopher Solomon who ever lived, the wisest man who ever lived, looking back at his life and and seeing this, he says, yes, it can. Solomon concludes in that same chapter uh, 2, verse 24 in this way. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This I have also seen, that is from the hand of God, he says. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without God? For to a person who is good in God's sight, to that person who is good in God's sight, to that person who obeys, he says, to him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Joy comes from using your labor to do what is good in God's sight. And that's the only way you're going to experience joy in this life, regardless of what your W-2 says at the end of this year. Not, not, you, you won't get the joy from making a ton of money. And you know that's true because there's a whole lot of really wealthy, wealthy people out there that are really miserable. It will come from enjoying God. God, his word, his truth, and obeying him. Simply eat and drink of your labor, Solomon says. Basic human necessities. He said joy comes from that. Those are provided by God. They make a person thankful. A full stomach. Ceiling fan blowing on you cool air in a summer day. Laying in bed, resting. The good stuff, the basic necessities... And and, and the person who is good in God's sight, that means obedient. Solomon says, receives the blessings of wisdom and knowledge and joy. Wisdom and knowledge and joy. How many people are looking for joy out there today and can't find it anywhere? They need to look to God. And looking and learning from his own past, Solomon essentially comes to this conclusion. In summary, do what God asks, obey God, be satisfied with the fruit of your labor, and enjoying life's basic necessities. Ice cold Dr Pepper, Chick-fil-A, the good stuff. Just the simple good stuff that comes day in day out. Great is God's faithfulness. I'm not charging extra for that. The simple things is where the joy is. Being thankful for for all that God's provided just obey God, Solomon would say. And, and you know, that sounds like the wisdom from another pretty famous king. The most famous king. A king who preached a, a sermon on a mountain. In Matthew chapter 6, while advising people who, they'd be worried about tomorrow, worry, worried where that next sandwich is going to come from. King Jesus says this, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Uh, They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? We are. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, they do not spin. Yet I say to you, that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, Jesus says, which is alive today and tomorrow, is just thrown into the furnace, when it dries out and dies, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, is the summary, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, that would mean unbelievers, the Gentiles eagerly seek all those things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. This is his advice. But seek first his kingdom and God's righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. The day-to-day necessities. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Is that not the truth? It's the same conclusion that King Solomon gave looking back. The simple things, enjoy them, God will provide them. Don't fret about tomorrow. Don't worry about building barns. Jesus provides this, looking back. Don't worry. Don't worry. Life's not about stuff. You're going to die and you're not going to take your stuff with you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and these other things will be added to you. Avoid sin. Do what God expects of you today. Seek his righteousness. Which, by the way, that's still getting up and going to work in the morning. You do what God instructs you to do. God will provide through that. And tomorrow will take care of itself. Because God's in control. Solomon referring to himself as the preacher here. He concludes Ecclesiastes with an an exhortation uh, to avoid striving after vanity and instead simply uh, obey God's words of wisdom. You look at chapter 12 now. It says in verse 8 of chapter 12, Vanity of vanity," says the preacher. That is Solomon. All is vanity. And then he concludes with, with a little summary paragraph about himself in the third person saying, in, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads. That's a sharp stick where you would direct uh, livestock with. Redirecting them to go one place or another. He said, uh, uh, the wise words of men are like goads. And, and masters of these collections, are, 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 of, of the scriptures, the, the prophets here, masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They hold fast. And they are given by one shepherd. You'll see that capitalized there at the S. The words are given by one God. But beyond this, Solomon says, My son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. That's not a reference or a critique to the books of Scripture. It's secular writings. People just go on and on and on about stuff. Repeating, rehashing. What can be said that hasn't already been said? Basically is what he's saying beyond Scripture. Verse 13, the conclusion. Solomon says, The conclusion when all has been heard is, Fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. Obey God. There will be a reckoning. Finally, looking back, Solomon says this, learn from me. Learn from me, he says. You realize, you do see that is why Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, right? That is why he wrote it. That's why he wrote so many of the Proverbs. So, so that he, we would not need to repeat the same mistakes that he did over and over and over. God provides us uh, his will and his wisdom through Scripture so that we don't have to learn the hard way. Solomon's trying to save us from the hard way. Not to imitate what he did. Yet that's what we do. Acquire stuff, follow lusts. Solomon says, don't do that. To paraphrase him, he says, I've followed my lusts, I've pursued riches, I've received honor from men, I've chased sin, and none of them pan out. Just obey God. That's what Solomon says. So if if Solomon is supplying us with wisdom for looking back and, and recognizing our mistakes in the past year, which I'm sure, if you're anything like me, you've made numerous, If you're looking back over the past year, he says, be wise enough to not repeat them in 2016. Don't repeat them. Learn from God's word. Obey. Learn from the past, what you've observed. Do better. Do better in 2016. What could we learn from Joshua? Joshua, the military leader, he was a commander over Israel. He, he was past the reins of leadership from Moses. Imagine that. He led the Israelites across the Jordan River into the promised land that God provided. And for 40 years, Joshua led the 12 tribes. He led them in, in conquest over the foreigners in the land. The foreigners who had backfilled as Israel, the, the Jews, were in slavery in Egypt. Foreigners had backfilled. They had flourished. They had inhabited the land well, well, basically Israel was down south. But God did supply what he promised in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Cities which they did not build. Houses full of the goods which they did not fill. Hewn cisterns which they did not dig. Vineyards and olive trees that they did not plant. Then God just told them, them all in Israel, eat and be satisfied. I prepared a place for you. All of these cisterns, all these uh, olive groves, these vineyards, these cities that were fortified, these homes were built by the pagans. They were erected while while the Jews were in Egypt. And, And when they came back into the land, they were already there. They were there just to step in. To step in and pick up. Yet, yet, there's an important lesson here that it was necessary for Israel when they went into the promised land, they had to follow God's command to march forward. They had to drive forward. They had to drive out the inhabitants of the land, the people who had built those cities, cisterns, and groves. Israel had to exercise enough faith to march into the promised land and believe that God would make good on His promises. Surely, you know, the, the inhabitants of those homes in those cities, they weren't just going to pack up and, and go away easily. They weren't, After all that work, after generations that they had built, all of that stuff and all those groves and vineyards and stuff, they weren't just going to pack up and, and leave. Could God have driven them out without the Israelites lifting a finger? God could have done that. Just as, just as the angel of the Lord went and annihilated 185,000 Assyrian troops in front of Hezekiah. God could have done that. But if God did that, then Israel would never have to learn how God provides victory after victory, after battle after battle. They would never see God working in their lives. They'd never see Him make good on His promises. If God were to remove every challenge and every threat to your life and your livelihood, every financial burden that you have, every health ailment that you suffer, if God were to take away every period of unemployment, every relational or family stress, if God would simply just remove those before we even encountered or experienced them, what spiritual wimps would we become? Never have any adversary. Never have any trouble. What spoiled brats we would be if that were the case. You know, it's very sad that there's a theology today that that's actually what God wants for you. That he just simply wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and prosper, and have everything handed to you in a silver platter without having to ever fight a battle of any kind. Ever having to escape any trial. Ever having to overcome any difficult situation. That's not what you find in the Bible. It's not the God that we serve. It doesn't reflect reality. Where do they get that stuff? Life is hard. And we have in the past, we will in the future, will face challenges, both as individuals and as a corporate body, as a church. And the more numerous and stronger we become as a church body, the more severe, the greater the challenges are going to be that God's going to bring our way. The more, the more difficult tests that God will lead us into as a church, He will bring us into that. That's what we can expect. You know, when our, when our nation, when, 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 our, when our military identifies a serious threat at home or abroad, at home or abroad, a very serious threat, do the generals at the Pentagon, do they decide to just drop in paratroops of uh, uh, fresh graduates of basic training? Let's just drop in some new guys. They've been around six weeks. D- do they do that? No. No, they would never do that. Why? It's because new graduates have not been battle-tested. They haven't grown. They haven't been strengthened. They haven't had to overcome. You take those those graduates, those privates, believe the Air Force calls them basic airmen, and, and you, you use them to guard munitions dumps up in not North Dakota, somewhere nobody's looking. Hey, just go over there and watch that stuff. That's what the new graduates do. If soldiers are going to be inserted into military hot zones, for uh, however, if that's, if that's where they have to go, they're going to be required to have advanced testing. They're going to have to be the best of the best. They've had live combat exercises. Much of the time they've had special forces training in order to to recognize unconventional warfare. Those are the ones who will be assigned to the difficult jobs, the ones who have been tested. The Pentagon's going to send them after high value targets. God gives us tests, never more than we can handle, but tests, and they really put the squeeze on us sometimes, don't they? They really feel uncomfortable from time to time. Thank God for them. Thank God for them. You know, the first first time Joshua led Israel into battle, they just had to walk around in circles seven days. And the walls of Jericho crumbled, right? They just had to run in. Pretty easy. March around in a circle. But then later on, they were required to... Do spying, they were required to adapt to new tactics in order to to have the next enemy delivered into their hand. They had to be stronger, they had to be smarter, they had to suffer some loss before the next high-value target was there. And God delivered them every single time. He delivered the enemies into their hands. When, When God trained the shepherd boy David, He trained him on unreasoning beasts. Creatures of habit, the lion and the bear, that you can predict. And God took him then after that and stood him up to where he slew Goliath. He had a soft target first. And then then after he had slew Goliath, after he had had, uh, had the greater assignment, then and only then, David, you know, already anointed to be king, then only then was he ready for a significantly greater test. He was going to be turned on by his own. Yet David always credited God for his victories. And he said to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 17, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And by the way, After I passed that test, David could have said, the Lord God's going to deliver me from you too, Saul. And God did. So David David always credited God for everything. That's what I'd like us to recognize uh, with Joshua. At the end of his life, looking back, Joshua credited God with everything, as he recalled his past. From the earlier scripture reading from Joshua 24, he recounted God's faithfulness, how, how the promises were fulfilled to the people of Israel. And, and we hear God declare in the first person in verse 3, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants. Verse 6, I brought your fathers out of Egypt and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. God says, I brought the sea upon them and covered them and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And verse 11, you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you. He said, I gave them into your hand. Verse 13, I gave you a land in which you had not labored, cities which you had not built. You you, you have lived in them over these years. He says, "You, you are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. Then Joshua speaks to Israel Uh, Himself as their leader, saying, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you'll serve. Whether it's the God uh, of your fathers who served beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you're now living. Choose your false god. Joshua says, "For me, for, as for me and my house, we're to serve the Lord. It was God who drove out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all theites, and, and it was God who handed over the cities, the houses, the olive groves, all the plunder. God gave that to them. God receives all the credit for anything positive that had happened to Israel in the past. Joshua never said of himself, you know what, it was me. Never said it was me. Looking back uh, and evaluating where God had taken him and his nation, Israel, Joshua did not reminisce over all his personal achievements and how great he had done. He rejoiced in what God had done, both in challenges and in victories in the past. Regardless where you sit personally today, at the end of this year, end of 2015, I pray that God's provided you wisdom from the past, that you're learning from the past, that you don't repeat the past, the bad things anyhow. I believe uh, God provides that wisdom that, that Solomon says... And and he gives us the ability to obey it, not repeating the past mistakes. And that wisdom of God's word will drive us towards obedience to God. I pray that God will do the same for us as a church family, not just as individuals. Learn from the past mistakes. Drive on. Forge ahead, and and as we are tested and tr- and receive trials, even bitter challenges as a church we need to acknowledge and realize that from the pattern that we we repeatedly see in scripture over and over again in scripture that God is doing that he's giving us those challenges to strengthen and prepare us for a greater work he has ahead it is a greater work he has ahead and as we rejoice for those, those marvelous tests, those gifts, those circumstances that God has provided us as we wait on Him to provide new opportunities, new opportunities to serve. We shall divert all the praise away from ourselves, everything to Him. Everything to Him. So when we meet again to open God's Word the next time in 2016, we don't need to worry incessantly about the future. We don't have to worry continuously about what we'll face What will happen? Where will we go? What will the time frame be? We don't have to worry about all of that that is held in next year. But God does ask that we march forward. You must march forward. And we trust that God will crumble those walls ahead of us as we're increasingly obedient to Him. That is going to be the subject where we shall lead off in next week's message obedient to follow him gleaning what we've learned from our past understanding that obedience to God is essential realizing you know what in 2016 we might have to step out a little bit in faith probably will absolutely will have to step out in faith so how are we going to do that going to have to come back and see us next year let's pray dear father in heaven Oh, we rejoice in in You, Lord. How great You are. How great is Your faithfulness. Lord, even when we fail, even when we feel miserable, Lord, when we ache because of sin, because of circumstances, Lord, we can look to You, look to Jesus Christ, Lord, our Savior, how He has provided the way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one shall see the Father except through me, Jesus said. He is the door. Lord God, He is the gate. He is your Son. And salvation is only available through Him. Lord God, uh, we thank you for today. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the name by which we must be saved, Lord help us to drive forward in faith and serving Jesus. Lord, your precious son. Lord, strengthen us to overcome the obstacles, Lord. Strengthen us to endure the hardship. Lord, it hurts sometimes being in this world. We suffer. But Lord, uh, let us do it in a way that will honor you. Lord, we we'll look look back next year and look at 2016, Lord, and say, "Thank God for his faithfulness." Lord, thank you for the for today. Lord, bless the remainder of this year. Help us to be more like Christ. It's in His holy name we pray. Amen.